Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to this, the first Sunday of Advent. We are going to attempt uh, at this pulpit during the Sundays of Advent to enlarge Jesus. Uh, of course, he doesn't need our help to do that, but we want to uh, shine a light upon the human nature of Jesus such that he shines uh, very brightly to us during the season of uh, Advent. So we'll be looking this morning at a passage from Colossians chapter 1. In fact, many of our passages will be very uh, familiar during the season of Advent, Colossians chapter 1. We'll just look at two verses, verses 19 and 20. Uh, Little theologians, if you could uh, draw for me a picture of how a knife works. A knife, of course, cuts things, but... Uh, get a snapshot, draw that snapshot for me of a knife that is cutting uh, something, uh, a turkey uh, maybe, uh, or a knife as it cuts a block of cheese, or a knife as it cuts uh, Play-Doh. A slow motion picture of a knife doing what a knife does. Paul's going to talk in this passage uh, about a division between God and his creation. That division comes from a knife, a knife called hostility. So you can listen for that in the sermon. Our passage is Colossians 1, uh, just 19 and 20. Would you join me in prayer and then we'll read God's word together. Uh, Please pray with me. Father, you have come to us in Jesus. You've made yourself known. The fullness of yourself indeed is known in Jesus. And we need you each and every day to uh, feed us uh, by your spirit as we uh, come to this, your holy scripture. We pray uh, that just as you have made yourself known in the coming of Jesus, would you make yourself known in the reading of your word through the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Colossians 1 verses 19 through 20, uh, look at it uh, there uh, in your bulletin with me. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of our Lord. There are things that we uh, think we understand, but then we uh, need help in understanding them fully. We think we uh, get the whole story. Uh, but in truth, we don't. And uh, because I'm kind of a snarky individual, I can sometimes uh, speak uh, comedically about those things that either I don't know much about or I don't care much about. And one of those things to me is baseball. Uh, I just don't care very much about uh, baseball. And I remember being with someone who is a diehard uh, St. Louis Cardinals fan. Um, And those folks are dangerous to mess with. And I remember uh, unleashing a snarky comment uh, around him. And uh, he knew I liked to read, and he said, you ought to read Three Nights in August by Buzz Bissinger. And that resonated with me because it's a book. A book about baseball is fine by me. And that book really uh, showed me that baseball is a big deal. It's a remarkable book. 
Buzz Bissinger is uh, writing about the uh, 2003 season of the St. Louis Cardinals, in particular a series with the Chicago Cubs. And the book is just uh, fascinating in revealing how baseball works. He describes uh, how it is that a coach needs to be able to master that space between the ears of a baseball player. And everything in this book is about how baseball players uh, think, how coaches think. It's eye-opening. It's not just a guy pitching a ball and a guy with a stick trying to hit it. It's a conversation that's happening. Strategy is happening with each and every pitch fascinating book. And really, the book serves to be a great uh, praise uh, to the sport of baseball. And I wonder if sometimes uh, that snarky comment that I made can be a snarkiness of heart when it comes to reading the Bible and getting to know Jesus more and more. Maybe you'd be willing to admit this morning that you know of times in your life when you have been bored by Jesus. Profess faith in Jesus walk in newness of life with Jesus, but occasionally are bored with him. Well, it could be you're that way right now. It may also be that you'll never admit to something like that. But just in case, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, do what Buzz Bissinger does to the 2003 St. Louis Cardinals. We are going to peer deeply into who this Jesus is. And I hope uh, over these Sundays, the volume of Jesus will be turned up in your heart. This morning, we're gonna see that Jesus is God's peacemaker. And Jesus is God's peacemaker. And the way I wanna structure the sermon is I wanna give uh, headings for the sermon that sound uh, just a little bit like a Tolkien book. You know, Tolkien would uh, make these characters who uh, would be known for the things that they uh, do. So uh, a character who's known by the fact that he is a a fire starter or a a people herder or an orc cleaver or doesn't that just sound uh, Tolkien-esque? Uh, Each of the main points of the sermon are going to be a little bit uh, like that. First of all, Jesus is the fullness of God. That doesn't sound uh, very unusual. But second of all, uh, Jesus, uh, he's not merely the fullness of God. Uh, Jesus uh, is, well, I had a number of ways to put this, but he is the reconciler of all things. But the third point is where it sounds strange. Uh, He is the bleeding sacrifice, fullness of God, reconciler of all things, and the bleeding sacrifice. And with each of these main points, there's going to be a key word that I want you to pay attention to. So first of all, Jesus, he is the fullness of God, and the key word is counterfeits. There are counterfeits. You see there, as our passage opens, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's rather difficult to uh, pin this phrase down. All the fullness is deliberately redundant. I hope you see that. One of those words seems to be able to work just fine by itself, either the word all or the word fullness, but all the fullness is redundant. And Paul's doing this uh, deliberately. 
And then for God to be pleased to do something is really close to him uh, deliberately choosing. For instance, uh, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1 that God chooses to use the folly of preaching to save those who believe. He is pleased to use the folly of preaching to save those who believe. It's a, a rather unique word to be pleased to do something rather than using the word to choose to do something. But again, again, Paul is being deliberate. And then you see he uses the word uh, dwell almost as if God is uh, relocating himself like a crab finding a new shell. What are we to make of this strange expression? Uh, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I think it's important to understand the setting of Colossians, Paul's writing to a people who are embroiled in arguments. This is not necessarily a church in which everyone is firing on the same cylinder. Uh, there is a great deal of contention that's happening in the church. And if you uh, understand this contention just a little bit, this strange expression begins to make more sense. And the contention has to do with this. Different Christians in this church at Colossae were wondering where to get true fullness of God. Where do I find God in his ultimate fullness? Uh, how do I see, feel, know, taste the fullness of God? And I hope that you find that to be a somewhat uh, contemporary struggle. How would you answer that question? Where is the fullness of God? How about asking it this way? When do you sense God in all of his fullness? Well, some in the church at Colossae would say that the fullness of God is found through philosophy, through the work of the human mind. There was a, a philosophy that Paul calls, calls an empty uh, deceit. That's what he calls it in Colossians 2, 8. But it was a philosophy nonetheless. The fullness of God exists in my understanding of who he is with a certain kind of a special knowledge. And as I have this special knowledge, I experience the fullness of God. Well, that's, that's a counterfeit. God isn't, uh, the fullness of God isn't found in philosophy. But also, the fullness of God isn't found in human traditions. There were those uh, in the church who felt that there was a certain nostalgia about, the, about their uh, history and about their habits. And uh, in that nostalgia, they uh, felt that they were experiencing the fullness uh, of God. Uh, Paul mentions this in the letter as well. Again, Colossians chapter 2. And he actually uh, calls it uh, traditions. Is the fullness of God found in Human traditions? No, that's a counterfeit. It could also be that the fullness of God is found in a certain a set of rules or behaviors that uh, when I am doing certain things, that's when I sense the fullness of God. Uh, in uh, earlier or later in Colossians chapter 2, 16 through 23, you can look at that and you can see uh, that Paul is listing all of these behaviors that uh, believers in the Colossian church uh, sensed would give them a greater fullness of God uh, about their eating and about their drinking, uh, what they uh, touch, what they don't touch, uh, ceremonial attendance, self-discipline, all of these things are behaviors and these behaviors 
seemed to promise a kind of fullness of God. And so is the fullness of God found in a set of rules? And no, it isn't. Is the fullness of God found in the Jewish religion? Uh, That word for dwell is used in Psalm 68 in which we read that God promises to uh, dwell at Mount Zion. And uh, indeed the temple was known as the dwelling place of God. And so uh, there were some who had Jewish proclivities. They may not necessarily have been Jews Jews themselves, uh, but those who felt that the fullness of God is found in one place. That's the temple uh, in Jerusalem uh, is the fullness of God found in Jewish religion. Well, that too, like philosophy, human traditions, a set of behaviors, that is a counterfeit. I do want us to think about this for a moment. Where do you think uh, you most experience the fullness of God? Some of you might say that the fullness of God is in a life that is well lived. I hope you don't say that. The fullness of God is felt in a life that is just uh, run by wisdom. I'm not so sure about that. The fullness of God is uh, felt when I simply avoid bad things, almost as if there's a return on investment. I stop doing bad things and I'll experience the fullness of God. Or maybe it's the opposite of that. It's doing uh, good things. I think it's similar to finding the fullness of God in a life well lived. We may fool ourselves into thinking that career success is a way that we experience the fullness of God such that when the career doesn't go well, Uh, Somehow fullness of God has missed. I wonder if any of us have a Norman Rockwell picture uh, in our mind's eye of a pretty and happy family. Uh, And then that kind of family contentedness then is the fullness of God. Now, of course, there's a little bit of this that is true. I wonder if you sense that when I said that, uh, that uh, simply uh, walking in wisdom, a life well lived, is not sufficient to experience the fullness of God. Maybe that rankled uh, some of you. But uh, this passage would have rankled the entire Colossian church because Paul, with uh, no uncertainty at all, says that all that could be known and experienced of God is to be found in Jesus of Nazareth. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. He is the fullness of God. That is a striking expression. All other fullnesses, well, they've had the rug pulled out from them. For in him is the whole fullness of deity. That's what Paul will say later in Colossians 2.9. In Jesus is the whole fullness of deity. God's word, God's wisdom, God's glory, God's spirit, God's power. All of God's fullness is in this little baby that was born in Bethlehem. That grew before the eyes of many. That little baby is the fullness of God and there is no other. Anything else is a counterfeit. So he is all the fullness of God, verse 19, but he is also the reconciler of all things. You're in verse 20. The reconciler of all things. 
through him to reconcile to himself all things. And the key word for the first section uh, was counterfeit. The key word for this section is hostility. He's the reconciler of all things. Really, he's the killer of hostility. Let me tell you what I mean by that. This doesn't seem quite the easiest way for Paul to say what he means, this uh, expression here, through him to reconcile to himself all things. There seems to be some verbal gymnastics here, but let's see if we can uh, sort this out. Uh, Jesus is an instrument of God's to do something. It is through Jesus, Paul says, that God makes something happening. And this is the emphasis, this uh, throughness of Jesus. It is uh, through Jesus. The grammar is very clear. Uh, God wants to do something. He dwells with Jesus. His fullness is with him. And now he wants to use Jesus as an instrument, as a tool. Now, I understand that's a terribly awkward way to phrase things. But God is employing Jesus to get something Done. That's what the opening of verse 20 means. Now, my father in law is uh, famous for using the wrong tool for the job. He would admit that. He might even be world famous. He always uses the wrong tool for the job. Now, he can do amazing things with the wrong tool, but it's still uh, the wrong tool. And maybe uh, some of you are endowed with that gift as well. But God here uses the right tool for his work, the only instrument that will perform uh, his will, perform his purpose, the only right instrument for the job. That's what Paul is saying with the expression, through him. And that's what Paul is highlighting and so what, what then is it that God does with the uh, instrument of Jesus? He reconciles to himself all things. Reconciles to himself all things. This word reconcile, we don't use that uh, very often. Maybe um, uh, bookkeepers might uh, use that, but it's not an ordinary word for us today. Um, but it's actually a bit of an unusual word even in the Greek New Testament. It's an unusual word because the word reconcile actually focuses on that which went before. You see, reconcile, it sounds good, doesn't it? It's two things uh, coming together. They're reconciled. Uh, that's actually a very good thing. But in the Greek, what's highlighted is the very bad thing that happened just moments before the reconciliation. Let me see if I can uh, give you an example. Um, if your mom said to you, brush your hair, that's one thing. Sure, brush your hair. But if she said, tame your hair, isn't that different? Brush your hair is one thing. Tame your hair is saying a little bit about what your hair looks like right now, which is wild and undomesticated. Tame your hair, our mom might say to us. You uh, tell me what you would prefer your physical trainer to say uh, to you. Uh, you are here in this gym to get trim or you're here in this gym to lose fat. I mean, in a sense, I, I really don't care. I'm, I, I am there to lose fat, but I don't know. I, I think I'd prefer him to say, I'm here to get trim. 
Your boss could return work that you've done and say, this needs to be redone. Or your boss could return your work to you and say, this is substandard. It's the same thing, really. This needs to be redone. But to say it's substandard is actually saying the way it looks right now prior to you, well, redoing it. One more time. It's important. When you prepare an elaborate meal for someone, you anxiously await their response as they take the first bite. And if they say, hmm, that's different, do you really want to hear any more? That's the word reconciliation. Something very bad has happened. And for God to say that we are reconciled is to actually call out that there's something gravely wrong and that reconciliation is absolutely, totally necessary. Reconcile, it sounds so diplomatic, doesn't it? Not in the Greek, it doesn't. For God to say that we are reconciled is to say that there was a fly in the ointment, but that God has laboriously searched for it, found it, and picked it out. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that to be reconciled is to have hostility killed. That's the edge of the knife. That's the edge that does the harm. These two things cannot be together, cannot be reconciled, because there is a hostility that has wedged its way in between these two things or these two individuals. There is an edge of a knife, there is an anger, there is a fightiness, a punchiness, a hostility. And until that wedge is removed, there will be no reconciliation Reconciliation is the removal of that thing that keeps the two sides separated. It's the removal of hostility. I want you uh, just for a moment to think about your own relationships. Are all of your relationships with spouse, with parents, with children, with friends, are all of these relationships okay? You might actually scan all these relationships and go, yeah, more or less, all these relationships are, are really pretty good, uh, average or slightly above average. Now, you, you might say that to yourself and uh, leave this building thinking, yeah, all my relationships are average or above average. No real problem. But would the others in those relationships say the same thing? In all of those relationships, might there, might there be one person who would say, well, no, I, I, I get it. You know, average is an okay word to describe this relationship, certainly not above average. But actually, I think it's more than that. I think our relationship might be below average. We might need to do some work on things. You see, human relationships, aren't they complex? You might think the relationship is just fine, but the other person might say, hey, well, it's not quite fine. I'm a little perturbed. I'm bugged by you. You have done something. You think things are fine, but I don't find them to be fine. And the way relationships work that way is, well, simply by ignoring the problem. You can ignore problems in relationships. They become taboo subjects. You don't talk about it. And you can ignore these problems for years. So for years, you can feel like this relationship could use a little bit of work, but it's an average to above average. It is a C or higher relationship. And you can live that way for years, not recognizing that there is a fracture, an intrusion, a splinter in that relationship. You know that this is true. I know that this is true. 
But Holy Scripture does not want us to miss that there is hostility between us and God and it cannot be ignored. We can't just shrug it off. We can't just redefine what a good relationship is. Uh, The difficulty is that we simply cannot paste over the hostility between God and creation and move on with life in a quite fine way. Well, we might think that we can do that. If you're here this morning and you hear that, that you uh, have hostility with God, you don't profess faith in God, and uh, the Bible is calling it a hostility that needs reconciliation, uh, you might very well shrug your shoulders and walk out of here and feel uh, quite fine about life. Uh, you need to work on spiritual things, and that might be the only way that you define it. But God cannot do that and has not done that. God is describing what is really there. It is a hostility, and you may think that in the best of circumstances, you can paint over it and move on, and then a year or two from now, paint over it once again and move on. God will not paint over it. It is there. He sees the hostility. He created the world to not be hostile to him, but to worship him, to follow him. But in the fall of Adam, everything was fractured And we might think we can ignore this, but God cannot and praise be to him has not. John Owen, a 17th century professor at Oxford, has a striking way of describing this. Uh, He says that uh, to God, we are obnoxious to him. Wasn't it wonderful this morning hearing uh, a child read a Puritan? I thought that was fantastic. This is another uh, Puritan. Puritans had a wonderful way with words. To God, we are obnoxious to his displeasure. We disrupt him, rankle him, more than get under his skin, but we are always obnoxious to him. We spark his anger and his wrath. This is what John Owen says. And since God is the one who is offended, he is the one who does something about it because he's the only one who can. What he does is he sends Jesus to be born as a baby, to carry not just his fullness, but to serve as his own instrument to kill the hostility between us. He is the fullness of God and he is the reconciler of all things. This is Jesus. The last thing is this. There at the tail end of verse 20, uh, he is the bleeding sacrifice. And uh, while the key word for the first main point was counterfeits, we find counterfeit fullnesses of God. The key word for the second was hostility. Uh, We uh, represent hostility before God. Uh, The third key word is simply the word uh, peace, which technically in verse 20 doesn't show up. Now you can look at the Uh, English Bible before you, it's translated as peace, but technically the word for peace isn't in the passage. I got to explain that. He is the bleeding sacrifice. Uh, Here we find the specifics of how Jesus is the instrument of God. Remember, through him, this is God's instrument to kill hostility, and here are the specifics of how that hostility is killed. The thing that Jesus does here is he puts into the past tense reconciliation 
at least it looks like that in this passage, because you see what happens uh, with that, uh, that, the bleeding, the, the peace word, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see that that is shoved back in the past tense. In the Greek, it's far more clear. Jesus has actually done something. And that word making peace is a strange word because it is one word. Peace is really missing from the sentence, but it's present in the word. Uh, This peace is a reference to the hostility that was once there. And Jesus, he is this great uh, peacemaker. He is the one who uh, comes in between God and humankind, God and creation, God and all things, even the spiritual realm. And he is the one who has the ability to uh, take those two that are disjointed and bring them together to make peace. And Paul actually invents a word to describe this. It's almost as if uh, Paul is enraptured in poetic expression and he uses the word from which we get the word poem in order to say he is making peace. He takes the word to make and he takes the word for peace and he fuses them together so that we translate it as making peace. One wonders if Paul is the kind of teacher who would use any means at his disposal to communicate the greatness and glory of Jesus, even if it means fracturing the language and, re, and creating new words. And part of how we should understand this is to understand that Jesus has this very unique ability, a grammar-breaking ability to make peace. And nobody else can do this. And that's what Paul wants us to understand. You remember as a kid that almost everything that was broken could be mended by glue or duct tape. Do you remember that? Almost everything, glue or duct tape. And if you really wanted to fix it, glue and duct tape. It will never, it'll just never break. And we get older. We know that's not exactly true. Things that are broken aren't that easy to fix. Duct tape and glue don't always uh, work. There's a phrase that is uh, well known in Alaska that's a bush fix. It's just a way of just getting the thing done. A friend of mine bought an airplane and I was excited to go to Lake Hood and see his airplane. That's a pretty cool thing. He bought an airplane. And uh, it was like looking at the worst used car you've ever seen. I remember looking in the cockpit and all the knobs were gone. It was a Piper Cub, so someone in the front, someone in the back. All the knobs are gone. There's just this bare piece of metal with holes in the metal and then little posts coming out. But what the previous owner had done is taken a hockey tape and just rolled it around the ends of those posts. I mean, just like the end of a hockey stick. And so you have a little piece of metal with tape and that's the only way you could grab those little posts. That's a bush fix. But you know, friends, life, life gets more and more complex, doesn't it? Duct tape, glue, and any manner of, well, bush fix doesn't always fix things. We know this. Larger things break. And when larger things break, you need to do it right. And if things are so big and so important that uh, when they break, you need to do it right or someone's going to lose their lives, then you really need to do it right. 
I think that all of us would agree that if there is a fracture in a human relationship, a counselor or a therapist or a psychiatrist can be really useful. But we also know that it's going to take more than that. Relationships are very hard. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take forgiveness and patience. It's probably going to take a whole lot of pain. Duct tape's not going to fix that. And glue's not going to fix that. If there's a fracture in something that's larger, something like the relationship between God and man, well, duct tape's not going to fix that either. He's the fullness of God, Paul is saying, and he is the reconciler of all things, but he is also the bleeding sacrifice. Paul says that true peace with God, true reconciliation is not merely the removal of hostility. It's going to require the blood of the only fullness of God, the blood of the only reconciler between God and humanity. In verse 20, Jesus came as a baby for sure, but notice in verse 20 that Jesus came to be a worker a performer. There's something that must be done. He has a task. And he's born as a baby in Bethlehem to perform that task, to live a perfect life before God as the fullness of God, to reconcile to God his own people, his own creation. And in order to do this, this baby, well, this baby had to die on the cross. The baby had to bleed. We tend to think that Jesus was born as a baby and took on human form and that that is sufficient to astonish us. And it is astonishing that God would take the form of man, take upon himself human nature. But this is the first Sunday of Advent and I want you to hear about the work of Jesus in the uh, nature of humanity, he has come to work. He has come that he might not stop at merely being the fullness of God or the reconciler of God, but that he might be the peacemaker of God. The astonishment this season of Advent is not just who he is, but what he did. He had a job to do and he came to do it as God's fullness, as God's instrument to reconcile, he came to bleed. And I want you to hear this over and over again this season of Advent. This morning, welcome to the first Sunday of Advent. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for making your fullness known in Jesus. And we thank you for using him as your own reconciler of all things. And we thank you, Jesus, for bleeding for our salvation. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning, this first Sunday of Advent. In his name, amen.